back and actually at capacity. I talk about interesting things with interesting people. And today I have Mary Jo McDonald on, who is a PhD student at uh, University of Toronto studying political science, political theory more particularly. Uh, so I'm very delighted to have Mary Jo on and uh, we're gonna have some some hot discourse. How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. How's it going with you? It's good. It's good. It's the weekend now. Uh, I had a classes end early today, so I am vibing. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I uh, for the audience, I uh, approached Mary Jo because I, I saw her share some really spicy uh, writing uh, on 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 she posted it and I, I and asked whether she should keep that in her essay or not and I said well if you don't keep it on your essay you can come on here and talk about it so <laughs> so Mary's studying uh some fe uh, some feminist theory from I not I don't want to get the century wrong but it's from a few centuries ago and uh <laughs> which one is it 17? 17 yeah. okay I got it sweet um and and yeah, so uh, we were just talking about uh, the sort of rhetorical issues uh, and what we can learn from these 17th century feminists. So do you want to recap your Me Too argument and this rhetorical struggle that we're having right now? Right. So I'll start with the rhetorical struggle and I'll bring the Me Too in as an example. Mm -hmm. So basically, I think that Rhetor like feminists face a rhetorical dilemma. And I don't think this is a new thing at all. Feminism has a problem of forgetting that previous generations also had their own struggles and, you know, dealt with them. And every it seems like every generation of feminists starts reinventing the wheel when they realize they can actually look to what women writers were doing even hundreds of years before them to like actually get some insights. So one problem that I think feminists are recreating is this sort of rhetorical dilemma, which is that on the one hand, a lot of people wanna celebrate women's choices. You know, if it's from sex positivity to, you know, their choices to speak out about me, me too, you can understand why you'd wanna like celebrate and praise women for these choices that might otherwise be portrayed rather negatively by misogynists. Um, so, you know, that's intuitive enough, like that's, a, but on the other hand, a lot of people like feminist feminism is also supposed to kind of interrogate women's choices and show how they are actually informed by, say, like patriarchal conditions and socialization. Right. So we don't just want to say like, oh, yeah, this woman's choice is perfect um, because you want to say like, actually, no, it was created by these sort of like patriarchal incentives that she faces. So, you know, if we just celebrate women, all of women's choices, Feminism really loses its teeth. We can't really like actually, like I wanna, I think feminism is about showing the ways in which women are rendered unfree by the conditions in which they live. And if we're not willing to call women unfree for the, and say that their choices weren't free, then, you know, our feminism is kind of lacking something. So the problem with that, if we do wanna interrogate women's choices and call women unfree in like some substantive ways, then we might be accused of holding in contempt or aligning with concern. Like we might be accused, ah, hey, just reinforcing the very sexist stereotypes that conservatives like terrible policy. 
So I guess the basic dilemma is like, do we celebrate women's choices and women's behavior and women's desires? Um, because we want to say, dispel certain prejudices about women not being capable of like free choice. Free, um, or do we, you know, show the ways in which patriarchy has stunted and, um, and even freedom? Know, that it patriarchy has made them desire things they shouldn't, has made them um, choose options, incentivize, incentivizes choices that do actively undermine their personal growth. Uh, but if we do that, we're accused of aligning with conservatives, holding our own sex in contempt. Right? So. I see that and, and I saw a lot of that <laughs> uh, when, I, when I published my Pornhub article. I, I think that's definitely a thing. And I, I, I kind of also sense the tension um, uh, where, you know, we don't want to infantilize women. And like one thing that has like a sort of rhetorical issue I found in feminism has been a sort of reluctance to acknowledge that like women can be terrible or like, <laughs> or like can also do like, like can do emotionally manipulative things. And there is a really great Zizek video where he talks about this um, in relation to the, to the movie Parasite. Um, so he's talking about how in, in Parasite, uh, the, they, they don't portray the like poor family as these angels for that, like, where like, it's like oppressor is bad, oppressed is good or whatever. And he was saying like, yeah, like feminism also has this problem. And he was like, you know, if you want to acknowledge that like women are in a subordinate position, then you also have to acknowledge that they're going to be doing things that like might seem morally incorrect or bad. Um, because they're fighting back with a tool that they have, like emotional manipulation. Like maybe you can't fight back physically, but you can screw with someone mentally. Yeah, so I think that's like totally, like, that's totally relevant to my interests. And I think it's relevant to the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. You know, the Me Too movement, in some ways, it's about public accountability rather than, say, going through a legal system. And you know, on one hand, I don't think that should, it should be so hard to say, like, that's not great. <laughs> like, that is not the best thing that should be happening. You know, like, we shouldn't be having to rely on, you know, the public square and canceling in order to get, like, justice for people who's faced, like, um, you know, sexual assault. And it could be abused. Like, you know, it is. Like, conservatives, like, clutch their pearls and are like, oh, I'm afraid for my sons. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you do have a point, like there's a reason to be afraid, like in principle, it could be abused. People could advocate for disproportionate punishments and people could lie and slander. Yeah, yeah, so especially, yeah. are coming from, like women are coming from this place where like the legal system wasn't designed to deal with these sorts of concerns. Mm -hmm. um, so it's their like last resort. So we shouldn't just blindly celebrate it and say there's nothing to fear. Um, so then the question remains, so then how do we like avoid aligning ourselves with the conservatives? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, also it, what, what this reminds me of is, is when the whole like war on terror was happening and, or, or like surveillance when the NSA surveillance thing was happening, they said, well, if you don't have anything to hide, uh, don't worry about it. And so I think a lot of these concerns are dismissed in the same way. Like they're saying, oh, well then just don't be an abuser and you don't need to worry about me too. 
but social interactions are can sometimes be very sticky and 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 like you know how can we tell if a guy like maybe you might interpret a guy's uh behavior as uh something abusive when maybe they're just really socially awkward um or like like especially in, in sexual situations right um and so i think there can be muddy areas and we we can acknowledge that uh yeah. without you know without being like yes we are also you know <laughs> buying into this whole uh whatever like conservative yeah. traditionalist framework yeah yeah i think that's totally true and like like not just in sexual situations like i think in professional situations where mm -hmm. the where the lines aren't queer clear or queer for that matter <laughs> yeah i feel like grad uh, school is a great example of yeah. where that happens like you know like a lot of times you have these like it's not just a professional relationship with people you're working with it's also like a personal relationship they become your friends and mm -hmm it's why students are pushing and I think rightfully for like strict guidelines in the department of what is appropriate in those relationships. So because it's easy to like misinterpret what people are doing or just be like, you know, uh, be extremely like tense and like, yeah, tense and like super hyper aware of if some you think someone is crossing a boundary and maybe being overly sensitive to that. When yeah. you feel particularly vulnerable, like you could be easily dominated because there's no institutional restraints, then you're going to be extra sensitive if someone crosses a boundary, even in a sort of minimal way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the with the legal system, like I, I think it totally makes sense that a sort of public accountability thing would come to light in this. I also think that part of it is that like new progressive movements are more libertarian in nature than like authoritarian left in the sense that uh, I think people don't trust like the, the traditional political legal institutions to solve their problems anymore. Um, but then the problem is, is of course, like you can still reproduce the same carceral or like retributive mechanisms that the legal system is is in place for anyway. So it, it's kind of like, I don't know, it seems like we're, we're a little trapped. Yeah, right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it me, you probably remember or know this. There was an article that I read once in the philosophy of law class, mm -hmm. and it was about self-defense laws. And there oh was yeah who like killed an abusive husband and it wasn't counted as self-defense because she could have like left like yeah or whatever um and it was and it you know so basically her lawyers tried to argue that she had battered women's woman syndrome where in an intimate relationship she felt like she couldn't leave but ultimately the law only thought of self-defense in the context of like a pub fight so it's like two guys if are outside a pub. If one doesn't run away, then it's you can't claim self-defense. Yes, yes. So I actually in my torts class we went over this this issue as well. I, I had to check the, for the name because I was gonna go nuts. But there was the the RV why not and the RV Lavalet case. And the Lavalet case, she did get uh, it was ruled in her favor because he said that he would kill her if she didn't kill him. Um, and then the other one was the husband was passed out. And so then they took, they said, you, you could have left while he was uh, uh, passed out. But yeah, you definitely see these situations that I, I, 
the legal system doesn't really seem equipped to deal with because a lot of laws were made like they, they don't really keep up with the changes in, in social norms and they're also not necessarily made by people who have insight into these problems yeah so then yeah so given those conditions you can understand it's totally understandable why women will resort to something like me too to try and get some sort of justice for the um you know harms they faced mm -hmm. So like, I think it's like perfectly like a logically consistent argument to say, look, women are behaving poorly and like, this is not an ideal situation, mm -hmm. but it's understandable. It's actually a product of these patriarchal institutions or whatever you want to call them, these institutions that aren't designed or equipped to deal with women's problems like domestic violence. Um, so, you know, it's logically a perfectly coherent um, position, but it seems like people rhetorically just hate the idea of aligning with conservatives because yeah. it's like you're treating women with contempt by saying that they're behaving badly so like the interesting problem to me and what i'm trying to work through is okay so how do we how should we write and talk about women who are misbehaving in this way or who put <laughs> these flaws without just treating them as objects of contempt like i don't want to celebrate women and i don't want to treat them with contempt so how do we move beyond these two ways of treating women in like how we describe them yeah. And that's into the past because I think they have some interesting suggestions. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're working on Sushan's work, uh, and 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 others, I, I presume. I uh, which is is quite interesting because I have only heard of Sushan in one course I've ever taken. Um, similar <laughs> the one I took with you and uh and yeah you don't really hear from like I feel like most of the time when I read works from the, this era it doesn't really deal with uh, the so-called woman question it's unless it's being like unless it's saying something a little bit ridiculous or outlandish so do you want to say a little bit more about that Sure. So Souchon for a little bit of background she's like this 17th century French philosopher her writings are mostly in defense of women. We're trying to, what, how she puts it, she's trying to really understand the kind of harms women face as a, as a class, um, which is interesting because a lot of people in her time would be like, oh, I'm interested in how the law treats wives unfairly or treats nuns unfairly, but she really wants to like be like, no, I want to look at women, the whole of them, the poor ones, the rich ones, the nobles. So she's a neat thinker. Anyway, um, and yeah, so she's from France, 17th century. Her writings are very much informed by her own life, where which we don't know all of the details of, but basically how it looks is uh, after the death of her father, it seemed like they either couldn't afford a dowry for her or she refused to marry because she didn't want to. And she was sort of forced into the cloister. And after some, so, you know, she's living and the cloister at this time is not as it was in previous times, like a safe haven for women to just have a community and not get married. It was very much dominated by priests. They couldn't read scripture without supervision of a priest. It was a very repressive place. Um, so then eventually she is able to, it seems like get to Rome and renounce her vows. So got a bit of traveling in, which she seemed to have enjoyed. Uh, and then like all of these details, we don't, we can't prove that she got to Rome. It's just suggested that she did. Um, so renounced her vows and then she just lived on her own. She was had terrible health, 
seemed pretty miserable, didn't have any friends, and was kind of just a social outcast writing her philosophies. And her, I find her a very unique thinker at this time. So many um, writers in the Corel de Femme, so this period during the Renaissance where people were talking about the worth of women. So lots of writers would just be like, ah, oh, women are wonderful. You call them chatty, but you're just prejudiced. They're actually quite <laughs> elegant. Uh, you know, or like, oh, you say women are overly emotional, but you're wrong. Think of it as compassionate. It inspires them to do good in the world. So they'd do this like stuff of really just praising and celebrating women and celebrating all of women's choices and all of women's behavior. Sushan, not so much. She uh, instead is like, no, women are chatty. They're overly <laughs> emotional. They're actually, they're like slanderous. They're like, they're all of these terrible things you accuse them of. And then she's really, what she's interested in is showing how these practices and institutions of like shoving women into the cloister and marriage produce these vices and this bad yeah. behavior, terrible choices. But then she like faces this question and she brings it up in the preface of her work. This question I was asking earlier about me too, which is like, okay, I don't wanna celebrate women. Other people have already done that. That ground's been covered. Lots of people praise women. <laughs> so then, but she's like, but I don't want to be accused of holding my own sex in contempt. Right. So like, so what does she do? She says, um, so I'm going to treat my sex as wonders. And like, at first that sounds a bit puzzling to maybe the modern reader because wonder we just take as like a superlative, like, oh, you're wonderful. But in the early modern period, it's not. Wonders are this like category of phenomena between the supernatural and the natural. They're monsters, they're earthquakes, they're volcanoes, you know. Um, they're mythic rebellions like the Amazons. These are all things that are, they're prophets like Judith who famously beheaded Holofernes. So these things are the wonders. So she says, this is what women are. They're this category. And how do you react to wonders? Well, you don't react to wonders with celebration, although you do kind of admire their power. And you don't react to them with contempt because they're so powerful, you react with fear. So, uh, yeah. so instead, I argue like what she's trying to do is she wants to say that like, yeah, misogynists are all right. Women are too chatty. There's, they will slander you. <laughs> and she wants to make it terrifying. She's like, they will slander you and destroy your life. They are like worse than hellfire. She says they're like gonna absolutely destroy families, tear everything apart. Oh, you think women are overly emotional? Like it's like an earthquake. Five. <laughs> like she just like, goes on and on, and it's like wow, you're really laying into this. Girl boss. No, I, it reminds me of, um, I was reading uh, in the summer, I was reading uh, Camille Paglia's book, Free Women, Free Men, uh, which I mean, you know, it's 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 a spicy book. I, I agree with some of it. I don't agree with all of it, um, but but it's very uh, provocative, so to speak. And, uh, and one of her claims she's made a lot is that uh, there's this idea in feminism that men hate women, uh, but it's actually that they fear women. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really fascinating, particularly in the context of Me Too. And their fear of women makes them behave in a particular way. So even like if a man is abusive towards a woman, it's not necessarily out of contempt, but out of fear of her. And that's kind of, I wonder if she's read Sushant, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, that's the idea. It's like, okay, so, you know, men, like, yeah, I don't know if they actually feel fear because sometimes they trivialize women's faults. Like that's the problem. Like, oh, it's called chatty instead of like slander, which is a lot scarier. 
Right. But, like I find it really interesting that what Sushan wants to do is lay into the fear and just right. like totally adopt it and say like, yep, you should be afraid. But like yeah. all the while coupling it with this really strong argument about how actually, you know, the, the women aren't naturally terrifying, right? Because, you know, if women are just like naturally terrifying, well, maybe we should lock them in cages and try and control yeah. them. Uh, yeah what she does with wonders like I think wonder is such a like interesting way of going about it because wonders are caused at least in in the early modern period wonders are caused by disorders in nature yeah you know an earthquake isn't is caused when winds which are supposed to be naturally above our heads get trapped underneath the ground so winds don't belong above our or winds don't belong underground so it creates this horrible convulsions and they break free. It's because of this like sort of disorder in nature that earthquakes happen. So by calling women, they're not just fearsome in some sort of normal way, they're fearsome and it's a sign of disorder. She's like pushing your reader to think, okay, what's the disorder coming from? And she's right. kind of like, yeah. You know, the disorder is because you're keeping them locked in these houses and these cloisters, you're subjecting them to the authority of their husbands and they're gonna break free like an earthquake. Right. Yeah. And you're going to have to try and find, I mean, that's, I think that's a very human thing where like, if you're in a situation, you're going to adapt to it. If you're in a situation that makes you feel unfree, you're going to use whatever device is at your disposal. So I really enjoyed like Zizek's comparison to Parasite, yeah. where you have like this, uh, this poor family who's like, you know, doing all these devious things, you know, and I think there's a stereotype of, of women being devious and manipulative and whatever and there's been this sort of pushback against that like you know no they're not how dare you um but yeah I think this is a very interesting angle that you're taking where it's kind of like well no maybe they could be you know and maybe there's a reason for that um, they are. better stop giving them reasons to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and I mean I I think also I, I think, you know, now we're turning to this point in, in society that's like, you know, we're less masculinized in a sense where, um, you know, the way that we deal with problems, I think like a, a reason why I think a lot of men feel like, you know, women are dominating now is because the kind of skills that women have in, you know, words and in, in uh, even being like emotionally manipulative or whatever is becoming uh more valuable <laughs> in <laughs> obtaining what you want right um and I think you know that also gives us an opportunity to be like well why is that like why is that the case um you know we don't know how to, some of us might not know how to, to fight but we know how to make you feel bad about like, about yourself in a way that like men don't. Like I was talking to, uh, uh, I think it was my brother and we were ta like talking about uh, like insulting your friends and whatever. And I'm like, no one knows how to insult someone like a woman does. Like guys don't really know, you know, like if a guy wants to like, you know, insult my appearance, like they can't really get at me, but like, it's like, no, like a, my grandmother can, insult my appearance better than a guy can you know like <laughs> and so they're totally mistaken about what we actually value yeah. And <laughs> yeah yeah so I think you know this is an interesting angle and on the me too thing I I read a book last year called uh I, I'm blanking on the name now but it's uh oh had it coming by Robin Doolittle 
and uh, she was talking about like the Me Too movement. And one of the things like, this might be a little bit of a departure of what I was just saying, but one of the things she was discussing as with the Me Too movement is some of the terminology that's being used that might be off-putting to some people. Um, so for instance, like the term rape culture is a term that I, like, I used to be like, okay, yeah, like that makes sense. But if you bring it up to a lot of people, they kind of like, it's not very palatable, you know? Um, and it's not very easy to explain. And I think like when you come out of academia, like I spent a year away from university and I was like, oh my God, so many of these terms, like nobody really knows. No, it's not even like that you can explain it. It's just kind of like, it's not really put in the right way. Um, yeah. Do you see this as a, as a problem that's been in feminism forever or is this like a newer thing? I guess there's like a lot of problems like there's a couple different problems you can identify with some of those like terms that are used almost exclusively by activists mm -hmm. is like one it's inaccessible so if you're trying to like make any sort of movement like I don't know I think you're excluding a lot of people and a lot of people who might otherwise be on your side right yeah uh yeah and then yeah I've never I've also I have a hard time coming up with an opinion on things because sometimes I think oh, I'm just stupid and haven't done enough research so I don't know what it means. You're, um, you're a PhD <laughs> student you're definitely not stupid. <laughs> uh, we're all a little stupid in some ways that we decided to do a PhD but <laughs> yeah well <laughs> no I, I mean I think that um, there has been a lot of self-reflection on on this right now uh whether it's like you know among some leftists or uh among feminists um but i think also there's a, a lot of things that i think are intuitive to a lot of women um mm -hmm. that you know like a lot of the things that we're saying about okay we don't want to hold women in contempt we don't want to like idolize them or whatever i think a lot of that's really intuitive um even if you're talking about okay like here's a circumstance in which we're unfree like my my Pornhub article I thought a lot of it's intuitive like I, I could talk about it with some people and be like okay yeah like it makes sense that if you are a worker you are like a sex worker no no less in a stigmatized profession you are uh, heavily subject to the whim of a monopolized corporation right like to me like most people would get that yeah. like it just seems very intuitive but then when you put it down um you get this backlash that's kind of like oh you're denying the agency of whatever and like it's kind of convoluting the discourse or it's actually like snapping back at our intuitions yeah yeah totally like i see it not just in your articles you know Catherine mckinnon got the same thing when she you know wrote about how sexual desire is so often formed by patriarchy and unfree, right? Like about your sexual choice. You know, a lot of, a lot of people said pretty nearly disrespectful things about Catherine. <laughs> you know, uh, Amia Servanasan remarked that people came pretty close to telling her she just needed a good fuck. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, people totally okay. react badly when you are saying what is like, yeah, to me also pretty intuitive but can be taken as pitying or treating women with contempt and not treating them as agents. Right, yeah. Look, no one is saying that like, or at least 
in the case of like say sex positivity and some people saying like no look your desires are inevitably going to be shaped by the patriarchal culture you're living in yeah no one's any culture yeah any culture you're living in like your desires aren't formed in a vacuum Mm -hmm. um so we're not saying the state should come in and like be policing everyone's desires or if I think it's a little bit weird that selfies are like taken just like exclusively by women and maybe they're a sign of vanity it's like I'm not saying the state should come in or if like women are incentivized to care more about their appearance than that right yeah you come in and seize their phones so they don't take any more selfies it's not like (laughs) in that sense selfie gulag yeah like we'll totally do get like very very upset when you suggest that like women aren't in control of their choices yeah and it it is strange I mean um one of the uh I, I see this a lot in the sex positivity debate and pornography whatever but also in the uh debate about veiling or the the hijab um which has like been imported to the west in the last few years but it it has also been uh a pretty popularly discussed thing among arab feminists for a long time so i mean a lot of people are very surprised when i say that like left-leaning uh arab political leaders wanted to ban the niqab right like it's like oh my god like what because they think that it's an act of right wing uh like they think it's an act of like the right wing uh premier of quebec that like hates muslims and jewish people right (laughs) uh like they don't realize that like there's also been discussions of this issue among people actually impacted by it um and you know like you it is very hard to talk so so i shared this this there's a video of a woman she's wearing a niqab and she's with her husband and she was saying like uh i uh only my husband can see me like this and like that's really liberating for me and blah 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 and i i shared it and i was like this is this is a deeply like problematic thing to think like only your husband can see your face and that this is not subject to critique because this is not like the majority of Muslims that do this. And like the fact that like people are pushing back against somebody who is saying like, only my husband is allowed to see my face as though you're his property is is like, and even maybe I'm wrong, like maybe it is liberating, whatever, but like the fact that it, it can't, like that kind of choice can't be critiqued, I think is very, yeah. It's also very counterintuitive because like what's you know I go to my grandmother's house she's Muslim and uh she'll critique it <laughs> like uh and, and you know she's like very in a fashion and whatever so she'll like she'll be like why should we have to do this um and they like she recognizes the context she didn't even graduate high school like she recognizes the context of that um but if you go to a higher level of like academic debate you know then suddenly it's like you're kind of punished for your intuitive reactions to these kinds of things yeah and ones that can be totally justified from like a feminist perspective yeah I have like a similar anecdote about um but like on the opposite end Mm -hmm. of like I was really I was a prude in high school (laughs) put it uh, in short terms, but I was like really in favor of a dress code. I wanted a dress code. I wanted it enforced. And in part because, you know, I was going to high school, like in a time when rich 
Canadians might remember Retea uh, Parsons and Amanda Todd, who are two girls who committed suicide for perceived sexual activity um, and being made fun of because of it, right? So I felt like there was always this incentive because you want attention, you're a fucking high school student. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you wanted attention, you wanted um, to be liked, you wanted to be popular, you could be made fun of if you were dressing like, you know, modestly or what you thought were comfortable in. So there was like that I felt this intense pressure to dress a certain way and I didn't like it. And I was like, look, if there was just like a dress code or something, then none of us would do this because ultimately the girls, I felt like the girls were in a bind where if we dressed conservatively or more modestly, then, you know, we wouldn't get any attention or we would get made fun of. But then if we dressed provocatively, we could end up like, you know, Amanda Todd and Retea Parsons being a called sluts and being bullied relentlessly. So for me, I was like, of course I want a dress code. And it was only when I got to university that I realized that that was not the feminist like um, stance on dress codes. I was like, whoops. Well, I get it. Yeah. I, I went to a school with a uniform and uh, it uh, like it was Catholic school. And uh, I think another thing is like, then you don't have people being like mocked for their, their clothing choice. Like, I think there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, so don't worry, that's something they, uh, but. Well, you might argue about like, okay, whether dress codes and enforcing it in that way is the best way to get around these problems, but certainly to still critique people's choices and say, look at the ways girls are being incentivized to dress. And like, we can critique why they're dressing this way. Like surely yeah. that should still be on the table, even if we agree that the state coming in or a school enforcing a certain policy is a bad idea. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, I, I wrote an article critiquing Quebec's uh, niqab ban so I'm not like you know I'm not saying like everyone come in and, and ban it um but... I'm people on the subway platforms presumably <laughs> that wasn't you yeah that was not me um and I, and I I totally like you know at the end of the day it's a free country ish yeah. um but <laughs> uh but I think you know we have to say you know one of the things I always ask is like and this is there's a speech by uh, the former president of Egypt, uh, Gamal Nasser, where he's, they're talking about uh, these people, the Muslim Brotherhood wanting to force a veil, what well, a veil ban, or wanting a mandatory veiling thing for women. And one of the men yell, let him wear it, like let the guy who wants the mandatory veiling wear it. And people were cheering. And I'm like, this is like a, this is a Arab Muslim, like Muslim majority country. So it's not like, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, yeah. or whatever um it's it's like people do have a basic intuition about you know say like forcing women to cover their face or cover their hair mm -hmm. um and I think it's yeah it's valid to ask why for me again so I'm always like okay well then why doesn't when I see these videos of like a woman <laughs> standing next to her husband and wearing it and saying I can't show anyone my face but my husband and I say okay well why doesn't he wear it too then like well you guys can just only show each other here <laughs> like there's there's a reason why it's um like I, I don't know I just think it's it should be subject to a fair critique even yeah. if even if I'm wrong maybe I'm wrong like I I don't know my theology 100% like maybe it's absolutely necessary um but you know, there's a historical and social context to that in the same way that there is to like, you know, wearing high heels yeah, totally. or like, why do we wear these painful shoes? Look, um, I want 
keep, keep women help no matter how they dress, no matter how they dress. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's not just that, like, it's also like, you know, we can also ask, you know, why we have to show, why we feel we need to show too much or like, uh, you know, I think this idea, there's, I don't know if this is new either, but this idea that like our choices can't be questioned yeah. or else it's like hating women is very um I, I think it's very like anti-discourse and it's also against again like the average person's basic intuitions yeah then I we think it ends up evaluate each other's choices yeah and so then it just ends up I mean making the average person feel alienated from the discourse because it's like wait what do you mean I can't say that like why this is a basic like so I'm always like no you're entitled to that question ask it now we just need like the rhetoric that suits it because yeah I wish we still talked about like the natural world as having wonders because, <laughs> like that's just the perfect way to describe uh women's behavior and choices like but like I don't know maybe we do maybe wonders is still like a way we can try and describe women who dress provocatively, describe them as wonders. <laughs> Iron's going to, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to like selfies or, or dressing provocatively, you can say that there's uh, like, there is something that formed that incentive without really saying that's like a bad thing. Like yeah. I like selfies, like sometimes- I beautiful women on my feed I'm like wow like it's like good job you know someone whose phone is exclusively filled with selfies like I'm, I'm making fun of mostly myself <laughs> yeah and like that's totally fine and and I, I mean I think a lot of um like any sort of theory or movement or idea is necessarily going to have to involve investigation yeah. Um, and I think there is like a pushback against these kinds of investigations. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It's like, I was always, I kind of thought that that desire to not interrogate people's choices was just a product of living in like a liberal individualist capitalist, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what we live in. Neoliberal health. No. <laughs> I think but it's true. Yeah. Like it could be that, but I don't know. Then I read like Sushan, I'm like, oh, it seems like you're going through the same thing. And obviously you're not living in the same society as me. So it's like, I don't know, maybe like the liberal society we live in exacerbates the problem, but it feels like it's a fundamental problem for feminists and maybe other types of emancipatory projects to deal with. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, I, that's that's always been my assumption. and. To me, like a lot of my frustrations with the modern left has been that I think it has been basically subsumed into like capitalism. Right. Like yeah. there's a there's a really great discussion in Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, um, where he also builds on Zizek's work, and yes. he talks about um, how capitalism needs to like it necessarily makes space for anti-capitalism within itself um and so there's like this gestural anti-capitalism within capitalism um and, and i think you know that's kind of i i kind of see that uh right now in in uh these modern leftist movements and so like this whole emphasis on choice 
where you're like building your brand and whatever and and everything is about what the individual chooses to do is I think like that's how I interpreted it but uh it's interesting to see that this goes back deep yeah (laughs) wants to like you know no one wants to critique the sex they're ostensibly trying to defend right yeah like so it's not just like ah individual choice is sacrosanct it's also just like I'm ostensibly defending women so I shouldn't probably just spend my whole book like dunking on them (laughs) (laughs) no I think you know the part of um I think part of fighting for people will necessarily involve treating them like humans and that will involve you know saying like they have capabilities that are morally bad in the way that everybody else does you know like um they are not like as much as I I get a kick out of like Marinella or something (laughs) um it's not as a like I think there and this isn't just on feminist discourse but any kind of social justice discourse sometimes there's a reluctance to acknowledge that whatever oppressed classes we're talking about are you know they're able they're able to be bad right like they're just like everybody else (laughs) yeah Um, and so yeah and it's interesting because I feel like it's just reminded me of another thought I had because like yeah if we're just like focused on like you know celebrating women and saying oh no they're not bad they're great look at all the ways in which they're great like there's this tendency I think in that tradition to kind of like then misidentify what the wrongs of like say patriarchy actually are Mm -hmm. like you know if you're just saying like ah you know women aren't uh chatty you're you're just prejudiced they're eloquent eloquent then you're saying all the wrongs of patriarchy are just men like misidentifying or being prejudiced (laughs) <laughs> you're kind of like mistaking actually no there's these material incentives and institutions that stunt their development and make them this way right and it's just tapering over all of the actual like material wrongs that are happening and reducing everything to like prejudice and I see that a lot in like 20th century or maybe 21st century feminism not yeah. all obviously the Marxist feminists aren't doing that but some recent popular feminism in philosophy I think really does that just treats everything prejudice or like sometimes institutions can embody prejudice and that's as far as like actually like talking about the material conditions women face so in in modern philosophy in terms of feminism i i feel like you know maybe it's just like our educate mary joe and i went to the same school um i feel I, i don't know if like we just our education was like all the oldies but like i can't even think of a lot of feminism feminists that are still in the game so <laughs> not that I'm enticing you to talk crap but yeah yeah well, <laughs> you want to give like an example I don't want to like target like Kate Mann because I only skimmed her book and it was like a year ago so I'm certainly going to misrepresent it but yeah, yeah. I'll just say then maybe the more of like a, I was looking the other day I'd say like a Guardian article about the book and how they characterize it right okay so it's probably doesn't do justice to review but at least how it's being taken up kind of bothers me. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's it's a book all about instead of like misogyny, right? right. And it's about 
like basically just about the prejudice instead of like investigating the real lives of women and thinking about maybe how like our economic system is gendered in these really pernicious ways that hurt women. Right, okay. Like it's, so it's about misogyny and her argument, the basic thesis of the book is that misogyny is not merely the hatred of women. It's not like if misogyny was just hatred of women, we wouldn't find misogynists. Right. So instead she argues and that misogyny is actually um, the hatred of women who like don't conform to certain stereotypes. Okay. Right. So like, you know, the women who are girl bosses are the ones who are like misogyny is about controlling women who are trying to like not conform. Right. Okay. So, like one thing that kind of strikes me about some like that analysis is that it puts all of our attention on the women who are in power. Right. It's yeah. in like Hillary Clinton, uh, Elizabeth Warren, they're not conforming, they're striving for power. Um, so they're going to be punished. They're going to be subject to a lot of different prejudice. And like my feeling is just like, shouldn't we as feminists be more cons like have an analysis that instead shifts our gaze to like the average right. woman and the way that like by conforming, they're actually really hurt. Like, yes, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Warren is going to be subject to a lot of prejudice being a woman in political office. But certainly more important is the material conditions that some women are facing by just conforming to what they're expected to do by taking gendered jobs that they're supposed to take and getting less money for that. And, you know, like, yeah, we should look at them. And, you know, I like yeah. to shop. She does that. Like her analysis, yeah. like, I'm over just talking about the prejudices women face, like the prejudice, the Queens and the noble women face. And she's like, I'm actually really concerned with how, like, you know, the cloister takes away any means for women to like advance their own knowledge or reading and makes them worse people. Right. I, I mean, I think also, that thesis to me just doesn't seem correct. Um, and maybe it's just the tides have changed a little bit, but I don't think that women in, in power, whether that's political or like in a CEO stance, uh, have the same, like I'm sure they might struggle in a male dominated environment, um, but like, let's say there's women who work in say domestic uh, housework jobs right like they're performing what's traditionally expected uh of a woman uh but they they bear the brunt like there there are for instance like hotel maids here that were organizing against like just systematic sexual harassment against them and they're like in these very economically precarious positions uh where like they will probably like not be able to get a lot of support behind them when they're experiencing misogyny in the workplace in the same way that maybe like uh, like a woman in, in law would. <laughs> um, and I mean, like we have a lot of structures in place like in the legal profession that are like very pro-woman and being like, yeah, girl boss will advocate for women, whatever. Um, and these are accepted in, mainstream, in the mainstream. Like if you go to most mainstream media, like they love the girl boss, um, but uh yeah you don't see that with women who are actually working these like very low wage jobs that are traditionally gendered uh similarly with like restaurant work mm, yeah uh, like that i feel like it's like the the role that you're in is what's traditionally expected of a woman and that's why you're treated so terribly so badly, yeah. yeah in my experience i don't know yeah. The restaurant work actually is an example that Kate Mann uses, and I'm not going to be able to recall the details. So for sure, I definitely didn't do justice to her, to her view. 
but I think it's certainly a view that a lot of people have and the reason why they are like so preoccupied with how these women in power are being treated because they think of misogyny and patriarchy is harming those women who strive for power instead of actually not chiefly harms the women who conform. Yeah, no, that's, that's really like, that's a really good point. I, I, I mean, I think just the, the big problem that I've been seeing in general in, in this sort of stage uh, is a sort of emphasis on personal attitudes uh, as opposed to like just societal incentives and, and material incentives. So like when we say, like, I think, you know, focus, I, I bring this example up a lot, but like people, who, there's a lot of people who are fixating on whether or not Trump personally is a racist or personally is a fascist, right? And I've just been like, who cares what it is personally? Like, what's the incentive? Like, what are all these institutions that are enforcing his will? And like in, in this piece I, I just published with Cato, I was saying like, you know, these, these American Democrats, they're talking about how Trump is such a racist and a fascist, and then they voted to give him more power yeah. uh, and more surveillance power. And so I'm saying like, this is a really like, it's a, it's an institutional thing. It doesn't really matter what someone's personal opinion is. And to be fair, it's not just the left that does this. It's also like these new uh, SoCal squared hoax people their whole they, they wrote a book and like the whole thing is about it's funny because they're very like anti-postmodern but it's a very postmodern argument <laughs> um and, and the whole thing <laughs> is like about how you know social justice rhetoric is like shaping like trying to reshape reality and like you know deny reality and whatever and my, like I'm looking at this and I'm like it's not people's like personal rhetoric that's shaping things it's the fact like to the extent that social justice has been tyrannical in people's lives it's been because of mainstream institutions have forced it down people's throat <laughs> yeah yeah like it's not the rhetoric that's doing any harm it's like you know the actual actions like you know going to someone's employer and managing to get them fired yeah and then and then the question is well why does the employer have the power to fire you for your yeah. tweet right exactly so it's not like really the activists or the rhetoric it's mostly you know just the boring same old employers have tyrannical control over our lives sort of yeah yeah which people don't really like to see brought up <laughs> Um, well, I, a few episodes ago, I had uh, Esperanza Fonseca, and who's a really brilliant person, um, and she is a labor organizer and, and does like a Marxist or proletarian feminist, and uh, she was saying how uh, like she organized fast food workers, for instance, and she said like they have a lot of like she had some difficulty at first with the whole like you know, we don't want to be exploited thing because there's a lot of pride, right? Like people have pride and they, no one wants to be like, I don't know. I, I sometimes I say this, like no one wants to be like, oh, I'm exploited. But then on the other hand, I feel like now there's a group of people that want to say that too. Yeah, <laughs> so. but, but yeah, no, I think you're like, labor is just like the obvious example of like, yeah, people want to take pride in their work and what they're doing. But instead of treating them as like, oh, pitiable, like I think Marx does like the rhetoric, Souchon is doing the same kind of rhetoric as Marx does just earlier on, um, where like Marx is like, oh yeah, instead of pitying people who are doing, who are being exploited, he treats them as no, they're like this fearsome force that is going to rebel and it's going to overthrow you. And yeah. that's the 
conclusion of Sushant's book. Right. Like, ends this whole book which a lot of people don't like because she's catholic so there's lots of like wading through scripture and stuff like that but the book ends like each each section of the book she's building in these horrible horrible vices women have comparing them to all these terrible wonders and the book ends by like saying that they really hate men like one of their vices is they absolutely hate men and they're super quarrelsome and they're going and basically comparing to them to the amazons who revolted against like whose husbands were died, a bunch of their husbands died in war is how she tells the story. They go kill their enemies and then exile all the rest of the men from the city and basically conquer all of Europe because they're so mad at men. <laughs> like, oh, man. So it's like, it's, you know, it's kind of, instead of like saying, oh, poor women, they're so pitiable or contemptible because of the conditions in which they're living in. She's like, mm, pitiable? No, they'll probably like rebel soon and kill you all. <laughs> and like, it's like yeah you know yeah treat workers as like contemptible for their jobs it treats them as a force of nature that's mm -hmm. inevitably going to to like kick back yeah and you know i i had an argument with a with an anarchist on twitter actually about this because he was saying like uh, like I was criticizing some sort of uh identity politics thing where i'm like you're assuming that uh there's a sort of thing where it was like assuming that every person who belongs to a certain identity thinks a certain way you know um the standpoint it sounds like yeah yeah more abuse of the standpoint and uh i i mean i think a great example is like the the biden you know if you don't vote for me you're not black like there's a sort of expectation in the u.s that if you're black you're going to be democrat and now there's a backlash against that with like the whole candace owens crowd uh and that is totally understandable to me like I totally get why they feel that way because they're being put into a box totally. uh, um and so I mentioned that and someone said well don't Marxists do the same thing with workers and think that they all think the same way and I, I my point was like no Marx is not talking about the way workers think he's talking about the material incentives and the material interests that they share and that there's there might like if they were to come together then right. they could overthrow like the whole point is that you know they haven't right but yeah. um and yeah, there, oh, there are very obvious tensions that's all <laughs> yeah no it's i think that's i mean i'm not a mark scholar i don't understand any of the germans frankly i really <laughs> them. but like yeah that's an interesting suggestion that Marx isn't trying to get inside their heads and see what they actually believe and it's just beside the point it's just that there are going to be these incentives yeah and i think it is it's such such a pointless task to try and really figure out what someone's like actual personality is and what their actual opinions are um about like say race or gender and then, you know, even if they do say something out loud that you like, everyone disagrees about what the line is for what counts as racist and what counts as sexist. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, seems like a pointless activity to try and figure out what people in power actually believe about. Yeah. Know. Well, especially, I mean, in, in this context, especially in the US context, um, there was this big kerfuffle about. Ilhan Omar when she said that like you know people are monetarily or or like incentivized by lobbying to like support to be like crazy for Israel or whatever and everyone thought everyone was so mad at that and I was thinking like this is just basic materialist analysis like 
I, I my point was that like uh you know you can't assume that people who work in a country where money is such an integral part of politics right like to yeah. the point where the courts have been like struck down rules again like for campaign expenditure ceilings uh are you really going to say that everybody supports what they support because they in their heart believe it yeah that, that isn't to say that no one's genuine but you know i don't think that's something that can be assumed and so you need to come up with a politics that is material that's is why i'm a materialist because it's like you can't rely on people's mental states to come up with a political framework right huh. so. It's, I, I agree. <laughs> I think I do anyway. I'm, I also change my mind about things every two seconds. So we'll see. I mean, same. So don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> I mean, especially when it, when it has come to feminist issues, you know, a lot of people come into feminism for emotional reasons, uh, you know, because it, it touches a nerve or hits a heartstring. And then once you're in it, you also get annoyed at everyone every five seconds. Um, <laughs> and so like, I have found it very hard to identify with a lot of like feminists today because um, I'm, not, I'm being like, I was born no. in the wrong generation. <laughs> but like for feminism, um, like take me back to the 17th century. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the only person who's ever said for feminist reasons please transform me to the 17th century <laughs> uh no i mean i think that you know there is a real uh problem in in modern feminism that like needs to be resolved and i, I think a lot of the contradictions uh have just glaringly came out during this last u.s election cycle during Canadian politics like we have a self-proclaimed feminist as a prime minister that's like literally selling weapons to Saudi Arabia right so it's like you know it, it's right. yeah it just feels like a big joke now even though there are serious thinkers uh I've had two of them on my podcast now so that's pretty cool but <laughs> I want to take the mic next I remember you and like take on put on the host pants because yeah. I want to ask you about this because you do you like not identify as a feminist anymore are you leaning away to it like obviously there's no pope of feminism so like yeah feminist, but do you think there might be something like useful about trying to distance yourself and not use the label anymore honestly like, I you just suggested it and it, I was like I still call myself a feminist um even I if know. I agree with but may, maybe it's useful well that that is a, a very good question I have had like so many crises of faith in the last like few months um that I don't even really know what I identify with at all uh I mean I think that like I'm I'm a materialist and I'm an anti-imperialist fundamentally um and I think that these issues encompass the liberty of women um and so in that respect like I think that I am a feminist and uh but I don't, I haven't really found any movements that I think uh, speak for me or, or to me, you know. Um, so like, for instance, if a feminist movement is not anti-imperialist, I'm not interested. And unfortunately, most feminism here is, aligns itself with imperialism. 
Um, so I'm not going to sacrifice my anti-imperialism for that um, because I think that is the most primary element of my politics. Um, but I mean, in terms of like, I actually, I wrote a blog post about this like last year um, because I think one of the things that started to really turn me off feminism was like the Elizabeth Warren crowd um because like I was seeing all this really dishonest misrepresentation and like people were mad like people were saying oh it's sexist to say that she's a liar and I was thinking oh my god like you think that calling a politician a liar is sex like I was just like I can't identify with this anymore like this is insane right like and, and in Canada again like if like the liberal party is is taking up this feminist mantle like I don't identify with that um and honestly I think increasingly so political labels are becoming useless right like what does it mean to identify with, with the left like is what is <laughs> what is that anymore it doesn't mean that you identify with uh the dnc or or the liberal party or i didn't stand through and through pretty sure yeah or like even like the jacobin left which i've been really critical of as well like they fall in line with the right on issues that are just not negotiable to me like they have they have very pro-imperialist stances on many issues um and or they buy into like the state department narratives that i just you know like i'm not so then i'm like okay well what does it mean to be like the left around the world is laughing at the rest of us yeah um the labor party in the uk right like they have a blairite in power tony blair uh is part of the invasion of iraq like it's so i'm just kind of like you know what does this mean anymore for yeah. for leftism to be a thing and so i feel very similarly about feminism um like i think a lot of my views are very like pro women so like you know like i think that for instance like i'm a big advocate for like decommodifying housing which i think is a very gendered issue right and I, i'm very uh you know i'm very interested in like the the well-being of people in the sex trade and that's my my job right now <laughs> is working at a legal clinic in that in that area I mean, I, I still feel involved in feminist issues, um, but I haven't found like a movement in particular uh, that I've thought, okay, yeah, like this is, these are my people, but I haven't found that with anything really, except for like the anti-imperialist movement. So yeah. uh, you know. bleak. <laughs> it is sad, but, but leftist fate <laughs> but the good news is like this isn't everywhere in the world right like there are women's groups in like latin america who are like properly socialist properly anti-imperialist right like i think and and my last episode i had caleb Moppin on who, who's traveled around the world and they were telling like and worked with leftists around the world and they were saying what the hell is wrong with the american left and probably the canadian left because we're not very different uh um and I think like you know that really rings like everybody knows it like we don't have a real left and just like we don't have a real left I don't think we have like a feminism that's like normal or actually interested in the emancipation of women in the way that I have like I don't think I've changed my values but I think that like I just haven't found like once I left academia I'm like okay so I read some stuff I agree with 
none of them are that recent. No. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I, I just read this book, though, that I would really recommend uh, called Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement by Anuradha Gandhi. Nice. It's not very long. And uh, I think if I were to say, like, to identify with a kind of feminism, it would be hers. And so, um, and so that, I think, wow, that's a very long answer. But like, I just, I feel like I was, that was like a therapy uh I'm on my therapy couch. I'm like hosting a podcast. Like I'm also like surrounded by cushions, just being like, oh. <laughs> um, being I like, haven't found like my my feminist wave. Kind of like I haven't found my church. <laughs> In some ways, this is becoming like Emma's episode, where you guys went from nationalism to just like yeah, yeah. religion. Oh, but yeah, I mean, I, this is this is a good chat. I think it, it is very great to talk with sensible people about this sort of thing. Um, and uh, is there anything that you want to promote to the listeners? <laughs> no, nah. I mean, I usually just use my um, my Twitter account for like Nova Scotia shit posting and like. Oh, yeah, you did something with Nova Scotia, I remember. Still doing. Like you I wrote involved- something. Yeah, I get involved in petty rural Nova Scotia politics. Love it. I, I'd say it's for principled reasons. I think it's a microcosm <laughs> all that's wrong in the world, but it's it's very very local. But no, I mean that's great. I, I like literally before I met you, the only thing I knew about Nova Scotia was the Trailer Park Boys. So, it's, uh... I mean, and that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't underestimate that. I, I learned that some people walk around carrying a glass of rum everywhere, and I was like, "That sounds lit." Uh, <laughs> I have to do that. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, yeah, to the listeners, hope you enjoyed this, and they'll see you next time. Thanks, us.